time is now six o'clock. Welcome to WORT's local news for Tuesday, November 7th. I'm your host, Sarah Hopeful. And I'm your host, Christian Knutson. In tonight's news, the Dane County Board of Supervisors approved its 2024 budget. A Madison grant program to combat food insecurity is being evaluated. Wisconsin's BioHealth Tech Hub is taking its next steps. And in the second half, UW student journalists discuss resources for sexual assault survivors. Activists deliver a message to Senator Tammy Baldwin. And the venomous rattlesnake shines in the spotlight. This is Christian Knutson and Sarah Hopeful with your local news, coming to you from the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. Proposed state legislation would block Wisconsin's public colleges and universities from administering grants and other funding programs based on race. The state assembly was set to take up the plan today, the Wisconsin State Journal reports. It's the latest in a slew of Republican-backed efforts to remove race from consideration in many aspects of higher education in the state. That's after the U.S. Supreme Court ruled against affirmative action in college admissions earlier this year. The new bill would only allow public institutions to consider financial need when giving out a variety of grants and loans, not race or other demographic characteristics like gender or national origin. Money schools use on retention programs also couldn't target students based on their race. A second bill up for consideration would let colleges and universities be penalized up to $100,000 if a judge rules they infringed on someone's free speech. Democratic Governor Tony Evers would likely veto the bills if they reached his desk. Activists and former offenders say Wisconsin corrections officials are dragging their feet on removing GPS tracking bracelets despite a state Supreme Court ruling. This issue affects convicted sex offenders who have served their time, according to the Capital Times. Under a policy from former Governor Scott Walker's administration, the State Department of Corrections required some sex offenders to wear GPS monitors for life, even after completing their sentences. The state Supreme Court ruled against that requirement in May, but according to several ex-offenders and advocates, their bracelets are still on and DOC has not provided information on how or when they can be removed. According to the Capital Times, the agency is still in the process of responding to an open records request about this issue. Transgender rights advocates and legal experts are raising the alarm about a bill that would restrict where trans inmates could be housed in Wisconsin's prisons. Under current Department of Corrections policy, requests from trans inmates for housing that matches their gender identity are handled on a case-by-case basis. But a new proposal from Republican lawmakers would force inmates to be placed in facilities based on their sex assigned at birth, the Capital Times reports. Backers say the bill is meant to protect cisgender female inmates, but opponents fear the change would expose trans inmates to increased violence. And legal experts warn the measure could violate federal law on sex discrimination in prisons. According to the DOC, there were about 240 self-identified trans inmates in Wisconsin prisons as of August. Universities of Wisconsin officials are moving forward with a plan to recover $32 million in state funding, the Capital Times reports. Republican lawmakers pulled the money from the state budget earlier this year in a bid to force UW schools to cut positions and programs related to diversity, equity, and inclusion, or DEI. Lawmakers said at the time that the money could only be used on efforts to boost the state's workforce. And that's what UW officials say their new plan addresses. Campuses would put the funding directly into programs for engineering, nursing and healthcare, business and computer and data science. 
UW President Jay Rothman said yesterday he plans to take the plan to the state legislature's finance committee for approval, but it's unclear whether that will happen. Republican Assembly Speaker Robin Voss has said the UW system will get no new state money unless DEI funding is cut regardless of any other proposals. UW-Madison has unveiled new public art on campus to celebrate Ho-Chunk history. The university commissioned three artists, including one Ho-Chunk student, to create large banners for display on front of Bascom Hall, one of the most prominent buildings on campus. According to a press release, the release, the banners use symbols, imagery, and traditional colors of the Ho-Chunk Nation and will be displayed on a building throughout November. They will then be incorporated into a regular rotation of banners that are placed on the building. UW-Madison computer science students joined federal officials today for a live cybersecurity response exercise. According to a university press release, representatives from the U.S. Department of Homeland Security, the U.S. Department of Energy, the FBI, and the Wisconsin National Guard took part in this exercise, while more than 100 students participated or observed. The event was meant to simulate a live response to an attack on the power grid and other infrastructure, according to the press release. And now on to today's top stories. The Dane County Board has officially approved its 2024 budget, which comes in at almost a billion dollars. This new budget continues county priorities that include social services, housing and youth services, and funds new initiatives in agriculture development and crisis response. WRT News producer Faye Parks has the story. The Dane County Board of Supervisors has approved the county's next capital and operating budgets, which, combined, ring in at upwards of $968 million. The budgets as adopted come with additional amendments to Executive Parisi's initial proposal. The most significant increases from Executive Parisi's original proposal concern housing, namely affordable housing, farmworker housing, and strategic housing initiatives. Here are some notable amendments the board approved last night. Fair Chance Housing Projects will get just over $217,000, and the Affordable Housing Development Fund will receive a $10 million increase in funding. The board also approved two additional positions to carry out regional housing strategy recommendations, and Farmworker Housing will get an $8 million boost from the Capital Fund. Supervisors approved adding in funding for health initiatives. Journey Mental Health, a crisis response contractor, is set to receive an additional million-plus of funding to increase staff wages, while a public health initiative to improve health disparities for Black mothers will also get an additional 50K. Other amendments add support for youth, from an extra 100,000 to support youth center programming, to an extra 45,000 to the Madison Reading Project for additional literacy resources. Diversity and culturally sensitive services were top of mind during budget deliberations with supervisors spending a third of their meeting on a proposal to allocate more funding for the Bayview Project, while cutting some funding for Second Harvest Food Bank. Supervisor Melissa Ratcliffe of Cottage Grove argued that Second Harvest has a wider-reaching impact on the county, but her colleagues disagreed. The proposal ultimately passed. The county budget comes with an increase in property taxes for the average Madison homeowner, largely as a result of spending on capital projects like the Dane County Jail. Supervisors voted to increase the county's tax levy. That's in spite of objections from Supervisor Jeff Weigand of Sun Prairie, who ultimately was the only supervisor to vote against approving the budget. Another source of funding for the county, 
money received as lawsuit settlements from opioid distributors for their role in the opioid epidemic will be decided by a new Dane County subcommittee. The budget also adds an economic lift for some Dane County staff, incorporating a 4.5% raise for non-unionized Dane County employees. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Faye Parks. The City of Madison runs a grant program that provides funding to groups and individuals who work to combat food insecurity. A recent evaluation of that program found those funds generally go to higher-need areas on Madison's north and south sides. WORT reporter Diego Alegria takes a closer look. The Madison Seed Grant Program distributes $50,000 a year to assist Madison groups and individuals who are working on improving the local food system. The program, which began in 2014, aims to increase access to healthy, local, and culturally relevant food while combating food waste and assisting local growers. It is a small grant program from the city to usually nonprofits or residents, individuals who are interested in food system projects. And that can be a lot of different things, whether production of food or provision of food or community meals, that type of thing. That's Nicholas Leet, chair of the Madison Food Policy Council, which administers funding for the program. He's also the Garden's network manager for Rooted, a Dane County nonprofit that runs several community gardens and is dedicated to supporting local growers. In 2020, Rooted received a seed grant and used it to create a free subscription vegetable box program during the pandemic. This initiative served around 75 families on the north side through various community centers. For LEAD, the seed grant was the starting point in an ongoing food system project. It was a one-time program, but we have, since then, we've been able to secure funds from various other sources to continue that program. Um, And I think that's also one of the main goals of the seed grant is that it sort of is a way to start projects that then can continue in, in other ways. As the program reaches almost a decade in existence, members of the Food Policy Council are evaluating the money that's been spent so far. At a meeting in October, members discussed the beginning stages of the evaluation run by UW-Madison Extension. Lindsay Day Farnsworth is the program manager of the Community Food Systems Program at UW's Division of Extension. Farnsworth serves on several other food-related committees. She says assessment is important to evaluate how taxpayer money is spent. We're invested in bringing, you know, rigor and evaluation capacity, which we have to these partnerships. The city doesn't have that same kind of in-house capacity, but they want to make sure that they're allocating taxpayer dollars to programs that are putting those dollars to good use. Part of the assessment focuses on where the programs that receive funding are based within the city and whether that matches up with areas that have been designated by the city as food access improvement areas. These are areas that use federally determined guidelines, like having low access to a grocery store or having a population that's lower income. Nicholas Leet says. 
Uh, how the assessment came about is I think that they, it is only $50,000, but it does add up over time. And I think we want to sort of make sure the grants are targeted in terms of priority projects as well as prior priority areas of the city and make sure all areas of the city are being served by the seed grant. In the meeting last month, Food Policy Council members looked at a map of seed grant projects and the Masia Fonkem is the Community Food Project Evaluation Assistant. Fonkem presented a map of the funded seed grants allocated across the city's districts. I think the thing that was most striking to me was how widespread food programs are in the city. They are in almost every single older district, though we are seeing a lot of projects in sort of the food access improvement districts. We are seeing projects clustered in places where, based off of narratives in the city of Madison, where you might expect. According to her presentation, the majority of the grants have been allocated in the north side, districts 18 and 12, and in the south side, district 14. Most of the projects focus on emergency food assistance and food system infrastructure, namely food banks, food pantries, community meals, and one-time intervention programs. For Funkem, these facts not only rests on the number of applications, but also on the decisions of the review team and the Madison Council based on the food access improvement areas. The next thing that we sort of saw was that the most common type of project receiving funding were emergency food assistance infrastructure. Those were getting a lot of applications and a lot of approvals as something that the seed grant committee thought that the city needed. A lot of organizations are applying for money for infrastructure updates. People need more money to store more food to give it away. Fonkin emphasized that this map does not tell the full story of food insecurity in Madison. It is not able to trace if the seed grant applicants work with neighborhood resource teams. Also, the map does not reflect the area demographics that intersect in each district. This is the reason behind the design and implementation of ripple effect mapping, the second stage and cornerstone of the evaluation, as explained by Farnsworth. And the cornerstone of the evaluation is ripple effect mapping, which is a way of engaging participants and beneficiaries in identifying what the impacts of the program are and where the opportunities for improvements are. Similarly to a focus group, the ripple effect mapping sessions offer an opportunity to interview organizations, applicants and beneficiaries about the indirect impacts of the program. Josette Gauli is the Evaluation and Program Development Specialist at UW-Madison Division of Extension. For Gauli, the seed grant program is like throwing a rock in a pond. That's the small investment, the grants that are given, the seed grants. And we're interested in hearing from the people who receive them how that made a difference to their organization and to their clients. And so you're rippling out and, and starting to understand the system. It gets to the, the question of, of attribution. With a ripple effects mapping, you're, you're actually focused on those causal connections. And so you can say with confidence that by giving this investment, it led to X. Attribution is key to the development and existence of the program. Last month, alter Sabrina Madison of the city's Far East Side proposed an amendment to the operating budget to add $25,000 more to the seed grant project. 
uh, created the amendment kind of in sort of a last-minute idea after hearing about the increase of use of local food pantries, more neighborhood-level pantries where they're seeing an increase, especially from families who are undocumented. Alder Madison has since dropped the amendment. She tells WORT that she was shifting to allocating more funding for housing complexes with no community resources or food pantries instead. What was coming up after me, an amendment or two or whatever, a few after me, was one for adding $100,000 to create programming for some of the local apartment complexes that are they're just very much uh, having some challenges. And the alders in those districts are wanting to provide some money to provide, you know, on-site resources and programming for those complexes because there's no community center, no food pantry. According to LEAD, the grant program requested $250,000 to fund this 2023, but only the usual $50,000 was authorized. In her analysis of the program, Fonkem emphasizes the ripple effects of this small funding source on food security in the city. I think the thing that's particularly striking to me is in the grand scheme of a city budget, how low each project's funding source is. We're not seeing any project getting more than $10,000. And so it's these like smaller investments that are able to do some really heavy lifting in terms of, you know, infrastructure. For Farnsworth, the seed grant program is a unique opportunity to low scale but critical projects that might not have other funding sources available. Even though these grants are small, they're often for things that there aren't clear alternative funding sources for, that being particularly true for infrastructure. I think it's matching relatively small dollar amounts with these critical needs that make the difference in terms of perishability and redistribution or, or distribution of food. Alter Madison tells WORT she's hoping to increase the funding sources for the seed grant program in the next CD budget in 2025. Then, she says, there will be more information from the evaluation of the program. For WORT News, I'm Diego Alegría. The time is now 6.23 and you're listening to WORT 89.9 FM Madison. Last month, Wisconsin was designated as a biohealth tech hub, one of 31 regional tech hubs around the nation that are eligible to apply for millions of dollars of federal funding. WRT reporter Jess Miller spoke with two members of the BioForward Wisconsin Consortium, which led to the application process to learn more about what will help the state stand out in the next round of funding. Last month, the Biden administration designated Wisconsin as one of 31 regional tech hubs as part of a novel program to promote growth in key technology sectors in promising areas across the country. Wisconsin was recognized as a leader in biotech and personalized medicine. The designation came with $350,000 of initial funding and the opportunity to vie for the next phase of the tech hubs program that will invest $50 to $75 million in each of 5 to 10 designated hubs. In Wisconsin, the BioHealth Tech Hub is led by BioForward Wisconsin, a Madison-based consortium made up of over 230 healthcare and tech organizations. We spoke to two of the consortium's largest members to learn about what this designation means for the state and their industry, and what will help Wisconsin stand out going into the next round of applications. Daniel Bianc is the Director of Government Relations for Accuray, the leading U.S.-based manufacturer for radiation therapy solutions. 
The company was founded on technology developed at UW-Madison in the 1990s. In 2016, their manufacturing moved to Wisconsin, and they moved their global headquarters to Madison earlier this year. They've been a part of securing the Tech Hub designation since 2021, when the idea was first introduced in the Endless Frontiers Act. Bianc says what makes Wisconsin unique is the combination of healthcare innovation through the university system and a strong manufacturing sector. So we have a long history of, of GE Healthcare has really developed an array of, of suppliers that, that understand the highly regulated medical device manufacturing. We have genomics, uh, a lot of startups around the, the Madison area. And so we have a unique combination of, of both you know, new innovations, but also the ability to build them here. And that's the story of Accurate, where you know, coming out of the UW, the new idea of of doing you know this this helical radiation therapy delivery, but then also to be able to to have the production here and have it be cost effective, and then and then that really I think enables a unique type of innovation where the people designing the technology know how it's built and are familiar with the, the clinical challenges that it solves. By having these things be invented here, having them be built here, people can can then count on having careers here in Wisconsin and uh, and, uh, and a broad set of, of jobs so everyone can participate in that growth. Katie Boyce is the Senior Director of Corporate Impact and Community Relations at Exact Sciences, the Madison-based cancer diagnostics company. Boyce echoed Bianca's sentiments, adding that... The way we will stand out is being able to show that we are working in a collaborative forward-looking way, that it's not about what, how many jobs we can get created in the next year, two years, or even five years. It is what does this industry, what does this region look like in 10 years? And we will be able to stand out if we can show that strategy and that collaboration very clearly. The consortium is still in the early stages of the phase two application process. If Wisconsin does receive the additional funding, Bianc says, it would go to a variety of projects to take healthcare technology from benchtop to bedside. And so the consortium has divided the, the, this, uh, this problem into really four areas. One is the education and workforce. That's making sure that we have the talent and people that we need, the right skill sets to really succeed at precision medicine. And manufacturing supply chain, and we have people like Plexus and Rockwell, which really represent a significant part of, of why companies can build medical technology here in Wisconsin. And then there's the technology side, which is like Accurate, GE Healthcare with the, the, uh, you know, the key enabling technologies for these clinical applications. And then lab to market for entrepreneurship. But how do you take these new innovations and really move them through their life cycle so they can impact patients? It's not an easily understood process, says Boyce. It's obviously a very complicated space because you have government regulations with the FDA. You have coverage decisions, both by government and commercial insurers. And the healthcare space is complicated. It's not as straightforward as developing an app for doing something. So it really is requiring some very complicated efforts to get focused and think about how our entrepreneurs can be supported in moving their great idea all the way to a patient. Going forward, Bianc says, Wisconsin will stand out thanks to the diversity of patients who receive care here. The thing that will really draw us together is rallying around a common and compelling clinical purpose. Wisconsin's also unique and has very diverse populations in both rural and urban settings. We really represent a cross-section of America's healthcare system, and we have a new uh, role to play in, in making personalized medicine practical. I think that's what will be special about this consortium. It's expected that the state's Phase two application will be completed by the end of the year. For WORT News, I'm Jess Miller.
time is now 6.33, and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm Sarah Hopeful, here with Christian Knutson. Thanks for joining us. On this week's edition of Cardinal Call, feature contributor Hiwan Lim sits down with the Daily Cardinal reporter Annika Burney to discuss resources for sexual assault survivors on and around the UW-Madison campus. Hello, and welcome to the Cardinal Call, your weekly dose of news coming out of the UW-Madison campus from the Daily Cardinal student newspaper. I'm your co-host, Gavin Escott. And I'm your co-host, Hiwan Lim. As Thanksgiving break approaches, we find ourselves nearing the conclusion of the Red Zone, which marks the period of the fall semester when campus sexual assaults are most prevalent. Students, female freshmen in particular, experience a higher frequency of unwanted sexual advances between August and November than any other time in the year. Over half of campus sexual assaults occur within these first four months, according to the Center for Women and Families. Following a traumatic incident, many victims may hesitate to report an assault or may be uncertain about whom to seek help from. UW-Madison and other organizations in the Dane County area offer valuable resources and support pathways for survivors. Today, we're joined by reporter Annika Bereni to discuss resources on campus for sexual assault survivors. Annika, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. What kind of services and resources does campus have available for survivors? Yeah, so I think the ones that are most directly connected to UW-Madison in particular are going to be UHS, Madison PD, UWPD, and UHS Survivor Services. So basically, those kind of fall more under the like official reporting, but survivor services, they do a lot of like other work. They have, I think, hearts and crafts where it's like a resource support group where you can do arts and crafts at the GSCC in the Red Gym. So they have a lot of support for survivors and they also have more official things. They can provide like accompaniment if students want to formally pursue action after sexual assault, but they also just kind of provide comfort in general. And so those are the ones that are the most directly linked to the university in the sense that they operate through the university. But then there are also other groups that I talked about in this article, like the Dane Multi-Agency Center or Dane Mac. And they have an office where they operate out of the sixth floor of UHS over at 333 East Campus Mall, but they're not an official UW-Madison group. They do their work and they provide care to students through UHS, but they also exist externally from campus. It's really good to hear that they have both emotional and medical support for survivors. Yeah, because I think one of the major reasons why a lot of campus sexual assaults go unreported is because of the stigma around it. People are worried, like, oh, what will people think of me? Will people think that I was asking for it? And there's like a culture of victim blaming that makes a lot of people really hesitant to report assaults like this. And so I think it's really good that the university and other groups around here are trying to dispel that culture that would have people afraid to report. In your article, you also wrote that UHS offers sexual assault evidence kits, Mm -hmm. which are more commonly called 
rape kits. Yeah. Currently, there's a bill which is under consideration in the Wisconsin legislature that aims to quicken processing times for these kits. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Essentially, it's like you said, a bill to quicken the processing of that so that you can get the results back, you can get the DNA back, and you can press charges if you'd like quicker. It is Senate Bill 37, so SB 37. It's very important at this time, and it's nice to see the legislature taking steps to help survivors of sexual assault because I feel like we're in a time where reproductive rights are at the forefront. And so any step, however small, is a step forward. We can talk about, you know, is it a large enough step? But it is a step forward, and I think it'll be really helpful in the future of getting convictions for sexual assault. Yeah, and you spoke about this a little bit earlier. There is some stigma Mm -hmm. surrounding sexual assault, and there are a lot of reasons as to why people might want confidential services. So what are some of the different confidential and non-confidential resources here? On-campus confidential resources, that's going to be if you want to just kind of talk to someone at survivor services. And then there's also kind of more just not UW-Madison specific groups like the RCC, the Rape Crisis Center, and Domestic Abuse Intervention Services. And so those are all going to be confidential where you don't have to share your name, you don't have to pursue official action. But if you do want to pursue official action, then you can either go through the police and the other is through the dean of students. And so if you want academic consequences for someone who perpetrated a sexual assault against you, you can talk to the dean of students. If you want official legal consequences, then you can talk to UWPD or Madison PD. And so those are the non-confidential resources where you do have to disclose your name and it will be a lot more, not invasive, but you will have to retell your story. And that's one thing that the Dane Mac, they're actually trying to help with is that they want to consolidate a lot of these resources and kind of streamline the process so that survivors don't have to constantly retell their stories, which can be very traumatizing. And so by consolidating all of these resources, you can maybe only have to retell it a few times and it's a far less traumatizing process. You also spoke with the director of Survivor Services. What was something that stood out to you from your conversation with her? It wasn't like a formal conversation. It was more of an email exchange. But Dr. Molly Caradonna is the director of Survivor Services, and she kind of sent over a statement on what Madison is doing specifically to deal with this red zone and to deal with campus sexual assaults in general. And I think one thing that specifically stood out to me that she said is that on campus, their data shows that about one in six students at UW-Madison are going to experience sexual assault. And then there was a similar statistic that said most students will know someone who have experienced sexual assault. It shows just how big the issue is. It's one in six students. The second statistic says like you likely know someone who has experienced sexual assault and you know someone who maybe is really hurting because of that or who may have had to go through the process of reporting or who may just kind of be sitting with it and be worried to tell someone because they fear that stigma. And so I think that was a very striking part that I learned. And then I know she also talked specifically about a lot of, like, in addition to what Survivor Services does for survivors, kind of the preventative measures that the university and uh, UHS take. 
And so I received an email a few days ago and they said, oh, you have to do your one-year refresher for the GetWise program that all incoming students, transfer students, graduate students have to take. And so Dr. Caradona talked specifically about those and the idea of making sure students were aware of boundaries, consent, just reeling it into their heads early on that even if you don't think you're a problem, like you need to seriously like evaluate your actions and you need to make sure that you are not violating anyone's boundaries or anything like that. So yeah, there's a lot of preventative measures that the university is taking. Yeah, you just mentioned the statistic that one in six UW-Madison students will experience sexual assault during their time on campus, and that statistic also really stood out to me. What are some ways that we, as peers, can provide support to survivors of sexual assault? One of the main things that I have always been told is that if someone confides in you, you kind of have to say, I will help you with whatever you want to do. And so not immediately saying, oh my gosh, you have to press charges, you have to do all of this, but just offering to be uh, a shoulder to cry on or just a listening ear. And so providing comfort for someone is one of the main things that you can do to help a survivor of sexual assault. And then after that, depending on what they decide to do, then you can continue to support them. But I know another thing is that if one of your friends or one of your acquaintances is someone who is accused of sexual assault, then you need to just not be scared to have a conversation with them about it because it will 100% be an awkward conversation. It might not be a conversation that you ever want to have, but that is one of the best ways to show support with survivors is by doing something in your life that doesn't benefit you, but that benefits them and showing the solidarity that you have. All really important stuff for us to know. Annika, thank you so much for taking time out of your day and and sharing your experience reporting on this really, really important topic. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed getting to talk about this. In other campus news, the Babcock Dairy Store launched a new flavor, 175 S'more Years, in honor of UW-Madison's 175th anniversary. 40% of the public voted in favor of the flavor, which features a chocolate base, a marshmallow swirl, and graham cracker crunch. In other campus news, the University of Wisconsin-Madison Police Department made 24 arrests during the Wisconsin Badgers' 10-24 loss to Ohio State at Camp Randall Stadium. 20 of those arrests were UW-Madison students. During the game, 60 individuals were ejected, 28 of whom were UW-Madison students. This marks the highest number of ejections recorded so far this season. UWPD also issued 25 citations, 21 of which were for UW-Madison students. In other campus news, University of Wisconsin-Madison alum and two-time NBA All-Star Michael Finley will deliver the winter commencement speech to UW-Madison graduates. Finley played for the Badgers' Benz basketball team from 1991 to 1995 and is the school's second-highest all-time scorer. He completed a degree in agricultural and applied economics in 2014. Winter graduation will occur in the Kohl Center at 10 a.m. on Sunday, December 17th. That's all for our Cardinal Call this week. We'll catch you back here soon. Check out more news and stories at dailycardinal.com. This has been the Cardinal Call, created by student journalists at UW-Madison. A coalition of groups supporting Palestine shared a message for Wisconsin's Democratic Senator Tammy Baldwin on the streets of Madison yesterday. 
WRT contributor Greg Jaboski reports. Tammy, Tammy, you can't hide. We charge you with genocide. At 3.30 in the afternoon yesterday, a group of over 50 people gathered near East Wilson and Butler Streets in Madison with a message specifically addressed to U.S. Senator and Madison resident Tammy Baldwin. Baldwin has supported the Israeli offensive in Gaza since the October 7th attack directed from the Gaza Strip by Hamas, according to the New York Times this afternoon, citing figures from the Gaza Ministry of Health. In the last month, Israeli strikes have killed more than 10,000 people in Gaza, including more than 4,100 children, and injured more than 25,000 and deaths and injuries continue to mount. The United Nations has condemned the week's-long bombardment of the civilian population of the Gaza Strip, a strip of land on the Mediterranean Sea, and with no free passage out, called by Human Rights Watch, the world's largest open-air prison, as disproportionate attacks that could amount to war crimes. Volker Turk, until last week, the UN director of the New York Office for the High Commissioner of Human Rights, in his October 28th resignation letter, chastised the UN for not doing enough in its history to stop genocides around the world, and who said of what is happening in Gaza right now, this is a textbook case of genocide. On Saturday, Baldwin joined 14 other Democratic Party senators in calling for what they termed a short-term cessation in hostilities, citing a need to minimize harm to civilians and allow humanitarian aid to reach those who are suffering, adding, we acknowledge the increased burden that this necessarily places on Israel to accomplish these obligations. Yesterday's rally was organized by the Milwaukee Anti-War Committee. In collaboration with Milwaukee Alliance Against Racist and Political Repression, Students for Justice in Palestine at UW-Madison, Students for a Democratic Society at UW-Milwaukee, Jewish Voice for Peace Milwaukee, Freedom Road Socialist Organization, and Project RICO. The group's demands included a call for Baldwin to introduce to the Senate a sister bill to H.R. 3103, the Defending Palestinian Children and Families Living Under Israeli Military Occupation Act, and the Cori Bush Ceasefire Now resolution, divest from pro-Israel lobbyists from the Baldwin campaign, vote no, to the House Republican plan to send $14 billion in U.S. aid to Israel and vote against President Biden's $106 billion supplemental national security funding request. According to figures cited by the coalition, Baldwin has received almost $423,000 in lobbying funds by pro-Israeli organizations, more than Wisconsin's other senator, Republican Ron Johnson. At the rally, the group praised Palestinian resistance to the ongoing Israeli occupation. Here is Alan Shavoya, outreach chair of the Milwaukee Alliance Against Racist and Political Repression. Words can't describe how disturbing, how infuriating, how nauseating the wave of violence against the Palestinians has been. They have bombed countless hospitals, countless refugee camps. They have killed thousands. Last I heard were about, I think, over 10,000. Shame. 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 And what are we seeing from these elected officials? Nothing. Jack, Jack shit, nothing. And one of them is Tammy Baldwin. Yeah, I don't think she gets enough. Boo! Instead of demanding an end to this genocide, instead of stopping the Senate from funding in the billions, in the tens and the hundreds of billions, this genocide, she's just giving them over in a silver platter, and she's smiling doing it. But we say that there is blood in her hands. Patricia Fish of the Students for a Democratic Society at UW-Milwaukee called on students to support the Palestinian cause. As students living in the U.S., a country that believes it has the right to impose itself anywhere it deems fit, we have this duty, the duty to stand up. 
Brian Verdeen of the Milwaukee Alliance Against Racist and Political Repression explained why he was there. I'm outraged at the U.S. government's complicity in the genocide against the heroic Palestinian people. And I just felt it was my duty to help send a message with these comrades of Madison to Tammy Baldwin that she needs to stop supporting war and these war machines and all of these our merchants of war. So we're hoping Tammy gets the message before her vote coming up. Stefania Sani of Madison for World Without War had this to say to Senator Baldwin. I'm here because I want to call Baldwin out uh, to the fact that she hasn't been doing anything that needs to be done to stop this genocide in Gaza. The U.S. government has ignored repeatedly over uh, tens and dozens of years uh, the abuses uh, that the occupation of the Israeli government has meted on the Palestinian people, and we have funded it. Rachel Ida Buff of Milwaukee Jewish Voices for Peace says that U.S. government actions are doing the opposite of protecting security. For example, there will be a bill on the floor of the Senate this week to allow assault rifles to be sold in the West Bank to settlers who are now deputized as military who are murdering Palestinians. That has to be voted against. As an American Jew, I say that it does not support my security to be murdering Palestinians committing ethnic cleansing and genocide in Gaza and the West Bank. Those were voices from yesterday's rally in Madison directed at Wisconsin Senator Tammy Baldwin and the U.S. government for its support of the ongoing destruction in the Gaza Strip. I spoke today to Sam Jiguer, a UW-Stevens Point student and member of the Quiche Nation, who gave his views as an indigenous person in North America. I would say that, well, my views and my feelings are pretty pretty similar to the way that our, our people were treated and continue to be treated. The way that I see it is just the U.S., Tammy Baldwin, politicians here in Wisconsin, as well as all over the U.S., are being complicit with genocide. They're being complicit with genocide of an indigenous people where settlers have taken over their land, their culture, and their identity. Politicians here in the USA, or the so-called USA, have shown their support for a nation committing, a nation committing genocide on land that is not their own. That was Sam Jiguer of the Quiche Nation. For the 6 o'clock news, I'm Greg Jabosky. They're more afraid of you than you are of them. We hear this phrase often, but that really does apply to venomous snakes, one of the most universally feared animals. On this edition of Wildlife Weekly, feature contributor Jackie Sandberg discusses the rattlesnake. They're a rare sight in Wisconsin, but that's because they're usually hiding from humans. Welcome to Wildlife Weekly. My name is Jackie Sandberg, and I'm the Wildlife Program Manager for the Dane County Humane Society here in Madison, Wisconsin. Each week, we choose a topic related to wildlife rehabilitation or the environment, and today I want to talk about rattlesnakes because I just got the chance to do a really fun thing here in the wildlife rehabilitation field, and that was take a venomous snake certification course, which is not something that rehabilitators often get the chance to do. There is a, an organization called the Rattlesnake Conservancy that travels around the U.S. putting on different workshops for folks that maybe work in the zoo field. So zookeepers, maybe it's conservationists, researchers that work with these endangered or threatened populations of rattlesnakes, but also rehabilitators that might get a rattlesnake into their rehabilitation center. Now, there aren't very many in Wisconsin, but it doesn't mean that we wouldn't get one. 
And we have actually admitted a timber rattlesnake to our wildlife center only once in the time that I've been on our staff, which is more than a decade now. So it's not going to be a common thing. However, snakes are around, they are in the environment, but what I've really learned from this class is that most of the time they are more interested in trying to stay hidden than they are trying to attack. So they are looking for their own food, they're looking for prey, they're looking for mice or little critters to eat, but they're not thinking of humans as more than just a threat that might step on them. They're not thinking of us as something that they want to eat, and so usually what they're going to do is try to warn us that we are near by having a tip on their tail that makes a rattling sound. So there are actually only two of them that I'm going to talk about today, so that's the timber rattlesnake and the eastern massasauga. Those two are both species that are very uncommon for us to find in our area, except that Dane County is highlighted, if you look at the DNR website, as one of the counties that does have both of them. So both of these two species are pretty amazing. They are venomous, and venomous meaning that they have something that is... (laughs) It's a complex substance that they have within their facial structure that they can secrete through a gland, but it's got a lot of different things in it like acids and proteins and peptides that basically come together and are able to inhibit the nervous system of whatever they bite. So usually their fangs are going to have a hollow center and their fangs will be positioned in their mouth somehow, depending on species, it can be a little different. It can be either hinged or it can be in the more of a static style, but they can replace those fangs if they lose them. But those fangs can inject this really toxic venom into the skin, under the skin, of whatever item that they are biting. So they strike real quick, they insert that venom, and then they back away and wait for their prey item to, you know, potentially pass away while then they can come back and eat it. That venom actually inhibits the nervous system by creating problems in kind of the synapse of the nerve. Very basically, it either creates chaos or it stops the nerve from functioning. So either you get like a paralysis or you get an overactive nerve. We don't have high mortality in the United States for our venomous snakes. Typically, the highest is like 30% without treatment. That being said, there's lots of exotic snakes that people will import into the U.S. And trying to find the right venom to combat that if you get bitten is incredibly expensive and incredibly difficult, as I have learned. But really, they do play a really important role in our ecosystem. So we love snakes and we want to help conserve them. The eastern Massasauga rattlesnake is actually a federally endangered species, so if we did happen to find one, that is going to be a species that would require a lot of special permissions to be able to work with. But the timber rattlesnake is not a federally listed species. It is one that is of special concern here in our state, and it's going to be more concentrated in the western kind of bluff areas of Wisconsin. And that rattlesnake tip is on the tail, and there are a couple species that mimic it, but the DNR has a really great website to show the differences between the rattlesnakes and their mimics. The rattlesnake tail tip is kind of like an empty hollow tip that looks like it's an extra appendage, usually a different color, like the timber rattlesnake's pretty black, kind of pineconey looking, where they rattle the end of it with what's inside. However, if they're a mimic, they're usually trying to hit the vegetation that's around them, and it's a much more pointed tail, and it looks pretty uniform with the rest of their body. So that's about the best way to to describe that, but definitely take a look at some of the pictures that they have. They have a full website. If you go to dnr.wisconsin.gov, 
So when are you going to see those snakes? Well, usually they're going to start coming out in the spring in about early April from their overwintering habitats. They're active through mid-November or so, depends on the temperature and what food is around. And if you're not sure if you have them maybe in your area, or maybe you do know if you have them, it is really special to have those types of snakes. And I think the more research that we know about where their populations are in Wisconsin, you know, the better to report it. Obviously, with federal protections, that could be a little bit different for Massasaugas, but hopefully they would try to keep that a little bit on the down low so that you don't have people coming to try to see the Massasaugas on your land or try to potentially take them because it could be valuable considering people still try to, you know, sell them illegally as pets, which we don't recommend at all. So it's something to look into, whether giving the DNR information about where you've seen them, if you've seen them, taking photos of them, and knowing that they're going to be pretty quiet here in the winter season. So about April through November is what you're looking at for when you might find them. And typically they're going to be in some really prime habitat, usually wetland to upland habitat, usually areas where there's a lot of reserve. So definitely take a look at the DNR's website if you want to look at each of those species guidances and where they're located. And otherwise, be on the lookout for snakes that are sick, injured, usually not orphaned, but usually sick or injured. They get hit by cars on the roadside, persecuted by people, hitting them with a shovel, that kind of stuff. So if you find an injured snake, yes, we do work with them. And now a couple of us on staff are certified to work with the venomous ones, which is very exciting. So if you do find that type of snake in that condition, give us a call at 608-287-3235. And that has been our segment here on WORT, talking about our two rattlesnake species that are in Wisconsin and appreciating snakes for all that they are, even if they're venomous. So thank you again for listening here. And this has been Wildlife Weekly. And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WRT's Live Local News at 6. Your headline writer this evening was John Klein-Wilson. Your reporters were Jess Miller, Diego Alegria, and Greg Jaboski. Special thanks to feature contributors Jackie Sandberg, Gavin S. Scott, and Hee Won Lin. Dave Lawrenson engineered the show. Faye Parks produced this newscast. And Charlie Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Christian Knutson. Stay up to date with the WORT Local News Podcast and subscribe wherever you keep up with your favorite podcasts. And I'm your host, Sarah Hopeful. Up next is Spanish Language News with Nuestro Patio. Good night.